Hi guys, uh, we're back and we're going with a little bit of a cold open here because this is some unique circumstances. We haven't been on the air in a while, um, but we have a really important episode that we want to put out. We actually recorded this right before the pandemic hit and that obviously changed everything, uh, including changing the date for the event that we're promoting here uh, to raise funds for cancer. So we want to put out this episode because it's really interesting, really fascinating, great guest. And uh, the event has changed to October 3rd, so it's right around the corner. You can still get involved. And we're going to have a new segment right at the end that we just recorded about what the event is going to look like now that it's virtual. But the rest of the episode pretty much stays intact, and so we'll play that for you now. We hope you like it, and we hope you get involved in the UCI Anti-Cancer Challenge. Welcome back to the Living Healthy Podcast presented by LA Fitness. I'm your host, Andrew Gabell. And I'm your co-host, Brittany Welch. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about a topic that's most likely touched you in some capacity. We're going to be talking about cancer. And whether you've survived it or you've known a loved one or friend who hasn't, most likely cancer has impacted your life in some way. The good news is that we're starting to see and hear more and more stories of survival. And with technology and medicine continuing to advance, we gain new allies in the fight every day. But it's a battle that's ongoing and one that needs funding and education to continue. So today on the show, we're going to be talking about what you can do to prevent cancer and why it's so important to get screened regularly. We're also going to touch on a very special virtual fundraising event that's coming up on October 3rd that you can be a part of. So joining us to talk about all this is Dr. Rick Van Etten. He specializes in blood cancers such as leukemia, melanoma, and lymphoma. And he was one of the driving forces behind the discovery of a specific protein that causes leukemia, which due to his discovery can now be treated with drugs rather than chemotherapy. But perhaps as equally as important, he's currently the director of the UC Irvine Chow Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, one of only 51 designated comprehensive cancer centers in the country. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Rick Van Etten. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Andrew and Brittany. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to come before you and talk to your talk to your listeners today. Yeah, well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. So we're going to be talking about, obviously, cancer and how you can prevent uh, cancer, or do your best to prevent it. But as I mentioned in the intro, most likely someone knows someone who's had cancer or they've had cancer themselves even. It's pretty, it seems like it's pre, it touches a lot of people. But can you kind of tell me how many people does cancer impact on a yearly basis? Well, thank you for the question, Andrew. The lifetime risk of getting cancer is approaching 38 or 39 percent. So more than one in three Americans will get cancer during their lifetime. So that explains what you said, that basically almost everybody has either been personally um, involved with cancer or knows a close family member or loved one that's been stricken by cancer. So some of the statistics nationwide in the United States, there's about 1.7 million people diagnosed each year with cancer. And there'll be about, unfortunately, 600,000 Americans will die every year of cancer. Wow. Here in Orange County, it's interesting that cancer has overtaken heart disease as the number one killer. And that's soon going to happen nationwide. So a very, very uh, prevalent disease. What kind of has led to, what's led to that trajectory? Why is that happening? Well, actually, the, the... the death rate from cancer has been falling, and it's been falling significantly over the past 15 or 20 years, which is a success basically for the research that's gone into it through the National Cancer Institute and other mechanisms. 
But the fact that cancer is now the number one killer has actually also reflected progress in cardiovascular disease, so we're doing, which used mm. to be the number one killer. Mm. So we're doing a better job at preventing and, and curing heart disease through the things that you know about treatment of the risk factors, like right. high, high lipids, blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera. Right. Interesting. Okay. All right. So we got some work to do on the cancer end kind of to catch up. Um, and that generally, like I mentioned, usually happens through education, funding, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, what types of cancers are the most prevalent today? I know that you specialize, or I believe in like blood cancers, but what are the most prevalent that people run into? So we can talk both about incidence, which is the new diagnosis that we have each year, and prevalence, which is the number of people living with the disease at any given time. But the top four in both categories are pretty similar. So there's breast cancer, which obviously predominantly affects women, but also can affect men. Then there's lung cancer. There's prostate cancer, which obviously is a male cancer. And the last one is colorectal cancer. Those are the big four. Close on their heels are diseases like skin cancer and melanoma. That's particularly relevant for Orange County, where we have 280 right. sunny days per year. Right. And after that comes some blood cancers that I specialize in, which is mainly things like leukemia, lymphoma, and myeloma. Hmm. Okay. What kind of leads to these types of cancers occurring uh, out of those top four that you mentioned? What, what's the biggest contributor to people getting them? Is it, is it just genetics? You got bad genes? Or is there something in uh, your lifestyle or in your, um, the world around you, I guess, that's causing it? So there are pro, uh, probably equal contributions, both from genetics and from lifestyle. Okay. When I say genetics, I mean the cancer is principally, in the opinion of a lot of us, primarily a genetic disease in that cancer cells have acquired mutations that contribute to their malignant or their cancerous phenotype, their ability to grow and attack the body. Most of those mutations are acquired. In other words, they happen just within the cancer cell. And they're not inherited, so you don't get them from your mother huh. or your okay. father. Now, there are exceptions. There are well-defined cancer susceptibility syndromes. The, most, the one that may be most familiar to your listeners is the BRCA genes, BRCA, right. which segregate in families, particularly people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent, that are inherited either from your mother or your father and greatly increase your risk for developing breast cancer or ovarian cancer so that the risk for a woman who doesn't have a BRCA gene mutation is about one, uh, about 11% or one in nine during mm -hmm. her lifetime. Mm. If you inherit one of these genes, it's virtually almost everybody will get breast wow. cancer. It's 90% risk over your lifetime. Mm. So those cancer susceptibility syndromes are very important. Uh, they need, uh, for instance, when there's a new cancer diagnosis, you need to take a careful family history and in some cases be referred to a genetic counselor to determine whether testing of family members is indicated. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's interesting that you bring that up because my wife actually, we went through that process. And so she was found, like her mother had breast cancer and through that process, they found out she had the BRCA gene, BRCA2. And then, uh, and so my wife decided, because they kind of give you a choice, like, do you want to get screened? Do you not? Like you kind of have, do you want to know more or, or like not? And um, stay naive to it, I guess. Um, and so... What I've discovered, we went through it and it's interesting, out of the split, my wife got it and her sister didn't. So literally the 50-50 there. And uh, it seems like, it's almost, I, I think my opinion is it's good to know because now they're just more aggressively screening her. And is that typically the case when you find out about something like that? You're more, you're screened even more regularly than the average person should be? That's right, it changes, basically changes the surveillance. 
And it's not to make it more complicated, but there are some genes like the BRCA's where the penetrance, which means the, the chance of actually getting breast cancer if you have the, have the gene mutation, is very high. I think there it's pretty straightforward to decide whether to get screened. Right. There are other mutations that can be inherited that don't increase the risk that much. They increase it above the background, but it's not nearly as high. Hmm. And there it's more complicated to try to decide what to do about that. But my advice to your listeners is to seek the advice of a NCI cancer center and a, a qualified genetic counselor. The, those are the people best qualified to help guide you through that decision-making process. Right, right. Um, when you're going through, uh, like you said, they ramp up the screening process if the, you had that genetic mutation. But how does how did we get to discovering these genetic mutations? I, it sounds like you kind of have somewhat of a background, like you discovered or helped discover this protein that was causing leukemia, right? And how does that process even work? How do we make these discoveries? How do you make these discoveries? So the I'm dis- not making them. The <laughs> discovery I was involved in is one of these acquired mutations, not inherited, but it came about from studies done many, many years ago, actually 1960, that showed that patients with this particular type of leukemia had an abnormal chromosome in their blood cells. And when, to make a very long story short, when that was tracked down, it was shown that the chromosome was actually an aberrant gene that Hmm. was acquired in these cancer cells that led to the expression of this abnormal protein. And that protein... Has an is an enzyme, which means that it has a ability to catalyze chemical reactions. Okay, and that particular reaction stimulated the growth of those blood cancer cells. Wow! So that led a drug company, which is today known as Novartis, to develop a, a drug, a small molecule that inhibited the action of that protein. Hmm. And that that drug, which has the trade name Gleevec, revolutionized the treatment of that leukemia, so that. In the past, everybody died of this leukemia unless you had a bone marrow or stem cell transplant. Right. Today, everybody takes a drug like Levec, and most people go into remission, and when they do, they have normal age-adjusted life expectancy. Wow. So that's the example of what that's a incredible. targeted therapy like Levec can do to cancer. Right. So does this all come from how, these discoveries? Does it come from um, just... Uh, tons of data over decades like this one you're saying it came from research started in the 60s and right. this discovery didn't happen until the early 90s is that right or well the the, the protein final, was dis- like- the structure of the protein was discovered i'm saying circa 1984 which okay. is when i got involved the drug development efforts took place shortly thereafter and when, and the drug was fda approved in 2001 so mm. it's it's been on the market now for almost 19 years right um, and there are many many other efforts in other cancers that have paralleled that. The thing that's happened today is because of our new technology and the genomics and the ability to determine, for instance, the genome sequence very quickly, that's accelerated the progress that we can make. So it took Mm. 40 years from 1960 to, to the drug of being approved, now can be done in a couple of years. Wow. So everything is happening much, much faster. That's awesome. That's great news for those of us living right now. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the stages of cancer? Uh, like what goes in, what does stage one through four mean? And what exactly? So the staging of cancer through? mainly applies to what we call solid tumors mm-hmm. as opposed to blood cancer. Because if you think about it, because the blood circulates throughout the body, blood cancers like leukemia are everywhere from the moment of hmm. diagnosis. Wow. But for solid tumors, they usually develop in an organ 
So let's take breast cancer as as an example. Mm -hmm. The very earliest stages are stage one, where it's confined to the breast and is very small. Like, let's say the tumor is less than a centimeter. Stage two, the tumor, the primary tumor in the breast goes bigger than that and can often spread to lymph nodes, for instance, in the armpit, the axilla. Stage three is more advanced. There's definitely lymph node involvement. And stage four is that it's spread outside the lymph nodes to other organs. That's called Mm -hmm. metastasis. Mm -hmm. So that general paradigm holds up for most forms of solid tumors. And the treatment of a solid tumor depends very critically on what stage it is. So in general, for the early stage tumors, stage one or stage two, the primary curative approach is is simple. It's surgery. Just remove the tumor. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then other treatments, for instance, radiation treatment, or chemotherapy usually come in in later stages of the disease. Hmm. So when you're doing the radiation and chemotherapy, is that in order to shrink the tumor when it's solid? or? So there are many different ways to use chemotherapy and radiation. Mm-hmm. One is in what we call the adjuvant setting. Mm-hmm. So that is after primary surgery. Again, let's take breast cancer. Right. So the, the breast either is removed, that's a mastectomy, mm-hmm. or the, the, the tumor itself, which is a lumpectomy, is removed. You use radiation to prevent recurrence locally in the breast. Okay. And you use chemotherapy in what we call the adjuvant setting to prevent relapse. Okay. So it's a little scary to think about, mm-hmm. but at the time that a, an early breast cancer is diagnosed, in some women, maybe 15%, it has already spread to other areas. Oh, wow. But it's very, very small areas of spread that are not detectable. And what the chemotherapy does is kill those cells okay. and prevent mm-hmm. relapses. Mm-hmm. So that's adjuvant treatment. Later on, if unfortunately a cancer spreads or is diagnosed when it's already spread, that's mm-hmm. stage four or metastatic disease, that's the disease that in general we can't cure. But we use chemotherapy to control it mm-hmm. and today to try to turn it into a more chronic disease. Mm-hmm. So there are women wow. that have had metastatic breast cancer for instance, to the bones that have lived decades. Hmm. Um, and that's something that we see increasingly today because our treatments are more and more effective. Hmm. Okay. But it doesn't reverse the effect of the cancer. It doesn't cure the cancer right. at that stage. And by cure, I mean treating it, stopping treatment, and it never comes back. Hmm. That's okay. the definition you, of a you cure. You basically okay. always have to continue treating right. it. That's right. Hmm. Okay. But for many cancers today, Cure is not necessarily our objective anymore because what we want to do is control the cancer and turn it into a condition that's more like high blood pressure or diabetes that we can control it and allow people to have a good quality of life. Hmm. You know, something that I've always wondered, is it possible to have a cancer that does not negatively impact your body? I know that sounds probably ridiculous to hear, but like, is, do you know what I mean? Like, can you have something that it's basically, it is technically cancerous, but it's not, it's not actually deteriorating your quality of life in any way. It's not impacting you. It's not doing what a typical cancer would do. Is that sure. possible? Take the example of that leukemia that Gleevec targets, for instance, the patients that I treat. Most of these patients um, will, as I mentioned, will go into remission But if you use very, very sensitive tests that can detect one in a million leukemia cells, some of these patients are still positive. If they stop taking their medicine, a lot of those patients will have the leukemia come back. Hmm. 
But as long as they take their medicine, they stay in remission, hmm. and they're perfectly fine. Hmm. So that's an example right. of what you just said. Right. And the, it sounds like being able to move into utilizing drugs to battle this is, it, it sounds like in your mind is a much better approach, I'm assuming, than chemotherapy or radiation. So oh. chemotherapy and radiation are still very valuable, but they both generally are designed to kill cells that grow fast. Cancer cells grow fast, um, but they don't grow nearly as fast as, for example, a human embryo. And that grows much, much faster. Mm -hmm. So as a side effect, they tend to affect other s tissues in your body that grow fast. So your hair, your GI tract, nausea and vomiting, mm. hair loss. So oh, the two big revolutions that, that have come out of NCI cancer centers like ours are these so-called targeted therapies and immune therapy. So the targeted therapies are what I just mentioned. The, the drug Levec is directed at a specific abnormality that is only found in the cancer cells and that the cancer cells depend on for their growth. So when you target that, you kill the cancer cells, but because normal cells don't have this target, they're less affected. So you don't get the side effects mm. that you get with chemotherapy. Interesting. Immunotherapy is one of the hottest areas today in cancer, and it is, broadly speaking, harvesting the body's own immune system to attack cancer. And there's a couple of different ways that that is done. One is through these drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors, which take the brakes off the immune system to allow it to actually wake up, recognize that cancer is huh. there, and attack it. Those drugs, for instance, are responsible probably for the fall in mortality and lung cancer that we heard about this year from mm -hmm. the NCI for uh -huh. the very first time. Other immune therapies include engineered immune cells. Um, some of these are so-called CAR T cells, where you take your own immune cells out and genetically engineer them to attack cancer and then put them back in the patient. Wow. So at, oh at our cancer center, we delivered the first CAR-T therapy to a patient in Orange County for the first time in, in July of this year. Wow. And then lastly, there are things like cancer vaccines, which basically were disappointing years ago, but they're having a second effort now, particularly when you have these other methods to help boost their effectiveness. Wow. So it's, it's a brand new world, and the yeah. challenge for the future is how to improve these therapies and, more importantly, to combine the two of them to be able to actually eliminate cancer and cure it. Right. I imagine this is an exciting time for you, it, it being in this field to, from where it's come from to what you see ahead of us and how rapid it's approaching. It's got to be a really cool time to be in your field. Uh, it's a very, very exciting time, Andrew. Uh, we're curing cancers that we never used to cure. Um, if you take, take Jimmy Carter, most of your listeners will know that he was diagnosed with melanoma and it had spread to his brain. Right. Years ago, he would have been dead by now. Right. He's now cancer-free. He's got some other health problems, but his cancer is gone, and that's right. because of this immunotherapy. So it's it's wow. really exciting time to be in the cancer research field. Um, we have more work to do. There are other cancers right. who that are still very hard to detect and very lethal, and among those are pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancer. So we have a lot more work to do there. So let's talk about screening a little bit um, and prevention. So why, I mean, this might be a pretty bland question, but why is it important to get screened regularly, like for our listeners? So because of the, the paradigm we talked about with the different stages, you can see immediately that it's important to diagnose cancer early. The earlier it's diagnosed, the more successfully we are at treatment. So that's where prevention and treatment come in. On the prevention side, we can talk about lifestyle and exercise, but there are certain cancers that are actually caused by very specific things, including viruses. So among those are liver cancer, that 
can be caused by hepatitis B or hepatitis C virus. We have ways to vaccinate against those for hep B and to treat those for both hep B and hep C. So those are very important cancers, particularly in our Asian population here in Orange County, which mm -hmm. is 20% of the population. Right. The other major cancer that's preventable through vaccination is cervical cancer. All cervical cancer, virtually all of it, is caused by human papillomavirus, mm. HPV. Mm -hmm. And we have a very effective vaccine against HPV. But unfortunately, only about 30 or 40% of young people are being vaccinated. Hmm. So that's another huge opportunity for us. Right. It is not an exaggeration to say that we have, it, we have the tools to be able to eradicate cervical cancer in this country if we only will apply them. Right. Mm. So we need to do that. Right. That's prevention. So to get to screening, later on, you want to screen for cancers um, where it's appropriate. And there's a couple of different cancers where screening has a well-established benefit. I go back to breast cancer. So it's well-established that mammography can detect cancers early in time for them to be treated. And the mammographic screening guidelines have changed over the years, but basically the, the, the main recommendation is to start at age 50 and to get a mammogram every other year. Right. But that advice differs if you have a positive family history or you might be at increased risk, in which case the screening should start earlier and perhaps be more frequent. Right. So at UCI, we have a clinical trial of comparing different schedules of mammography depending on a patient's individual risk that I think is very important. Hmm. For colorectal cancer, the main way to detect colon cancer is to detect the, le the, the lesions that will develop into cancer, and those are called polyps. Everybody gets polyps in their colon. Some of those will progress eventually to become cancer. The main way that we want to detect those is through a procedure called colonoscopy. So you should have a colonoscopy exam at age 50. And depending on what you find, you should have repeat exams throughout the rest of your life. Hmm. And that's designed to detect these polyps and remove them before they can become cancer. For those people who hate the idea of colonoscopy, and I want to emphasize that we're much better at it today. Mm -hmm. The preparation is much easier. Right. The procedure itself is not painful. Right. But there are some patients that still do not want to have a colonoscopy. You can, there are other tests that you can do. For instance, this test called Cologuard, where you send a stool sample in, or testing for blood in your stool. But those are much less effective than actually getting a right. colonoscopy. Right. For prostate cancer, there's a very specific blood test, which is called PSA prostate-specific antigen. That is effective at detecting early cancers, but using that information has to be very carefully nuanced because it can detect cancers so early they will not actually affect the survival of older men. Hmm. And so you don't want to have a, a procedure which can be complicated by morbidity or even death, like prostatectomy or radiation, unless that cancer is actually felt to impact your health. Right. So right. using the results of PSA screening is important to have the appropriate discussion with your doctor about what to do about the test results. Hmm. And then the last one I'll mention is cervical cancer. So we have pap smears for that, and we have mm -hmm. actually DNA-based pap smears today that are much hmm. more effective um, for women that have, have become HPV positive in, in spite right. of the fact of having a vaccine. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so with, you know, what I'm interested in is like with mammograms or colonoscopies, I hear, you know, 50 and above. Where did we come up with this guideline? Like 50 is the age where all of a sudden, like, this is when you're going to start getting cancer. Like, why couldn't it happen at 30 or 70 or what, why 50? Um, the, the actual truth is, um, which is a little uncomfortable, <laughs> it's based on a cost benefit analysis. 
Really? Oh. Okay. And it's done by a branch of the government called the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. And they look at large numbers of studies and try to determine the actual economic benefit in terms of survival of right. patients for screening. So that that's Interesting. that's okay. the truth. Yeah. Um, a lot of us can disagree a little bit with their recommendations. For instance, I personally disagree with their PSA recommendations. Um, up until two years ago, they actually discarded PSA as a test. They said because of this issue of detecting these small cancers in older men. Hmm. To me, and what I tell my patients, and what I do myself, I say knowledge is power. If you know you've got an elevated PSA, and that means you've got cancer. That's information that's important. The question is what you do with that information. Right, right, right. Yeah, how far, when, you, yeah, it's like, I think in mm -hmm. my wife's case, same thing. Like, let, let's know, and then we have, we know, you know, to pay attention a little bit more. It doesn't have to disrupt your whole life, but you pay attention to it. It's in the back of your mind. Uh, that, that, is a, that is actually the most interesting answer I think I've heard so far. That is really interesting that it's a cost-benefit analysis, which is, uh, I guess, I, I don't know. Ideally, that's not awesome. You know, we'd like to just be able to, pay for all these screenings and do all that. I suppose it's more pragmatic um, mm -hmm. the way they do that. It is really interesting. And like you mentioned, though, people shouldn't think like 50. That's when I start doing it. If you have a family history, however, talk to your doctor because that it might be accelerated, right? You might actually be getting a mammogram at, in your 30s if you had a family history of your mother had breast cancer, her mother had breast cancer, right? Okay. That's right. I think the holy grail that a lot of places are trying to work toward um, is to try to develop blood tests to detect early cancer. And PSA is one such test, but the question is, can there be other tests like that developed for other cancers? And this mm -hmm. is particularly relevant to ovarian and pancreatic cancer where we don't have any good screening tests. Right. So there's a right. lot of um, research interest in this, both within academia and in, the, and in industry. So for instance, GRAIL is a huge company that's trying to develop blood-based tests. Mm. Here in Irvine, um, where there's a company, Laboratory for Advanced Medicine, which, full disclosure, I'm a consultant for, is also trying to develop tests like that. Okay. So I think those types of things are potentially big breakthroughs that can happen in the future. Right. Great. When we talk about prevention as well, is there something people, what role does diet and exercise play in prevention? Obviously, here at LA Fitness, we believe in a healthy lifestyle, exercising regularly, eating well, taking care of your body. Does that play a role in um, helping you prevent cancers from occurring, or what, what role, if any? Definitely. Very well established by the evidence. You have to understand that the evidence here is basically what's called case control studies. So they, they, they do, uh, a, they'll look at people that develop cancer versus those that don't, and they ask them questions about their lifestyle. So it's very difficult to prove a direct causality between, say, exercise and cancer. But if you do that, and you look at the people that exercise and that have lower BMI, body mass mm -hmm. index, um, they have a lower rate of developing many different types of cancer. The mechanism behind that's not completely understood, but one thing that we do know is that obesity um, is inflammatory. Because mm -hmm. of the fat cells that you have, they mm -hmm. tend to die, they cause an immune and inflammatory reaction, and cancer basically feeds off the state of inflammation. Mm -hmm. So that might be one way that that happens. Interesting. With diet, the evidence is even stronger, I would say, because we've known for a long time that certain diets predispose to certain forms of cancer. Mm. The strongest evidence is in colorectal cancer, so eating right. um, basically red meat, um, eating uh, processed foods, high level of you know uh, saturated fats. These are all um, promoting cancer. Right. For women with breast cancer, one of the biggest risk factors is alcohol. So hmm. more than... I would say four 
glasses of alcohol per week is an established risk factor for breast cancer. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Epidemiologically Including very wine strong. Including wine and any type Includes of alcohol, wine, right? beer, yeah, hard right. liquor. Yes. Hmm. Yep. Interesting. Wow, that's interesting. Um, well, I think that that's really interesting. That I mean, you so you can help yourself by being healthy in general. Um, that seems to be kind of shown. Um, when should people start getting screened? We kind of talk about the you know fifty for those mammograms, mm-hmm. but is there something they can do before that? You know, for especially I would think like a younger generation, millennials, mm-hmm. or, cancer is probably so far from your mind unless your parents mm-hmm. have it or you've seen someone with it. What should they even be doing to kind of start thinking about this, maybe as you enter your 30s? Or? I think it's actually a lifelong process. So okay. when, when patients are adolescents, they should, um, their pediatrician should be recommending the HPV vaccine to them. And it's both oh. women, girls, and boys need Good to be point. vaccinated. That's one thing. With the melanoma risk here in Orange County, it's very, very important to avoid sunburn. It's the sunburn that really increases mm. your risk. So uh, teaching about wearing protective clothing and appropriate SPE protection and avoiding sunburn because the sunburns you get when you're 17, 18 years old, they have a history and they will contribute to development of melanoma later on. Uh And then it's not too soon to start getting good skin exams as Hmm. part of your regular um, primary care when you're in your teens. What are you, what are you kind of looking at? Well, you mentioned like the SPF thing mm-hmm. for the sunscreen. What do you recommend? Do you have a recommendation? Can you make a recommendation on that? Um, there are many products out there that are effective. Um, the SPF factor is good. You should be using stuff that's uh, at least 50, okay. particularly on your face and vulnerable areas. Um, the other thing about skin lesions that's kind of interesting is that the way a dermatologist or your primary care physician will, will make an initial assessment is to basically just look at it. And mm-hmm. they use basically a couple of criteria. We call them A, B, C, D, E. So A is area, B is border, C is color, D is diameter. Hmm. And there are apps on your, on your cell phone that you can download for free really? and take a picture. And it will give you actually an amazingly accurate guess as to whether it's something to worry about or not. Wow. So that's really? something that everybody can do. It's not a substitute for seeing your doctor or a dermatologist. Right, right, yeah. But it's something you can do proactively to participate in your health. Right. Do you uh, do you have a specific, do you know of a specific app that's in your mind? Uh, I'm not going okay. to recommend so one. What, you can, what would you search? I guess, what would you search? I'll just look for melanoma. Skin uh, app? Screening app. Screening yeah, app, okay. Go that's on the really app store or the Google store, you'll find them. That's really and, cool, and, especially for the next. And look at the ratings. The ratings are actually surprisingly good. Right, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Well, so uh, as we've been talking about this, I think one thing that's become clear is that we do, for these breakthroughs, obviously, you need to have funding, um, especially some of this more cutting-edge stuff that's you know really ex- experimental, maybe, or early phase. You need to have the funding to kind of take your shot at these different avenues. So you guys are uh, basically have established an event now that this is going to be the fourth year it's happening. It's called the Anti-Cancer Challenge. It's a run or ride event. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But I kind of want you to talk about the um, the UCI Cancer Center and how you're the director of that. And it's designated one of the com- 51 comprehensive cancer centers in the country. So it's actually kind of a rare distinction, right? What does that mean? And kind of can you tell us about the center a little bit? Uh, of course. So the, the NCI Centers program was created a long time ago, back in the 70s, by the Nixon administration as part of the war on cancer. And they're the principal way that the National Institutes of Health and the National Cancer Institute 
promulgates cancer research at academic institutions across the country. So they give these grants to centers that have already established cancer research programs. And my job as director is to use that money to help bring investigators together to work in new and transdisciplinary ways to attack the cancer problem. Hmm. So there's only 51 comprehensive centers in the United States, and we're the only one that's based in Orange County. So it's hmm. a very special thing. Right. Orange County is a very interesting place um, in terms of the patients that we serve. It's the sixth most populous county in the United States, hmm. 3.2 million people. Wow. Um, that's more than about 20 different individual U.S. states. It's an area of great um, socioeconomic diversity. We're one of the wealthiest counties in the United States, but there's also areas of poverty, right. as you know. Mm -hmm. um, Non-Hispanic whites, like me, mm -hmm. are in the minority here right. because we're 34% Hispanic and we're 20% Asian, mainly right. ethnic Chinese, but also Korean, and we have the largest Vietnamese population outside of Ho Chi Minh City. Hmm. So these different populations have different cancer risks and huh. burdens, and our job as a comprehensive cancer center is to identify the specific burden of cancer on the citizens of Orange County and come up with research-based programs to, uh, to alleviate that burden. Hmm. So what goes um, into, uh, what, what do you guys, what success have you seen out of this cancer center that you're kind of proud of? So although we're a relatively small center, we, the research that has come out of UCI and our cancer center has had national and actually international impact. Hmm. So I can give you a couple examples of that. Sure. So one is actually in breast cancer. So we have developed a unique technology here called optical spectroscopic imaging, which is using visible light to image tumors like breast cancer. And unlike mammography, which just gives you an x-ray picture, this technology can actually look at, in real time, the blood flow, the oxygen levels, the water and lipid content of hmm. a breast tumor. So we conducted a nationwide trial um, a year or two ago that used this imaging in women that are getting what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer. So this is where you give chemotherapy up front to a woman whose tumor is so large that it would be difficult to remove surgically. And the idea mm. is to shrink it so that it can then be excised completely, oh, which is called a complete response. This technology was shown to be able to predict whether a woman would be successful in getting a complete response at the very first dose of chemo. Wow. So that's really striking, and wow. the next thing we're going to be doing with it is moving it into the decision-making phase, because if we know that a particular chemo is not going to work, we would switch at that point to try something different. Right. More knowledge, yeah. So that's breast cancer. Mm -hmm. In cervical cancer, which is a big problem, particularly in the Hispanic population in Orange County, we showed that addition of treatments that target the blood vessels in the tumor, which is called anti-angiogenic therapy, added to chemotherapy actually prolonged the survival of women with advanced cervical cancer. So that's a study that came out of UCI, was expanded to the national stage through a group called the Gynecologic Oncology Group, led by one of our investigators, Dr. Krish Tiwari. That led to approval of that medication by the FDA and changed practice in the U.S. and also across the world. Hmm. And that was just done the last couple of years. Wow. So your, your cancer center is kind of unique in that you you focus on all areas of the spectrum. So the research and development to the implementation of that or the testing of that, the screening of people, treating of people. Can you talk about that a little bit? About That That doesn't happen everywhere. Is that right? That's correct. So um, our cancer center is embedded within a university that has many different um, schools and departments that work on cancer. And then we have a health enterprise, UCI Health, that also treats patients. So we carry out the whole spectrum of cancer research 
that includes the most basic studies, let's say, of cancer cells in a test tube or a petri dish through models, animal models, for example, um, patient-oriented research, outcomes research, and then most importantly, the clinical trials that we do in patients where we test sometimes for the very first time new drugs and devices uh, right. against cancer. So um, that entire spectrum is what we do as an NCI Comprehensive Cancer Center. Wow, that, that's awesome. And so in order to do that, as I mentioned before, and I've teased a little bit, it takes money to do this stuff. And so you guys have created this fundraising event that's the Anti-Cancer Challenge. Um, LA Fitness is contributing to it, and we're kind of partnering with you here locally. Um, but can you talk about that event and uh, maybe how it got started, how you've seen it grow, and just what the event is in general? Certainly. So as the Cancer Center Director, I have a need to fund some of the most innovative, high-risk, high-payoff research that's coming out of the laboratories of our, of our scientists and our Cancer Center members. So we have a lot of funding from the NIH and the NCI and from other organizations like the American Cancer Society. We have $45 million a year in funding. Mm -hmm. But these organizations are a little bit risk-averse. They like to fund sure things, and they won't fund necessarily the most innovative research because they perceive that it has too much risk. So just to give you an example, the, the immunotherapy treatments that we talked about, the checkpoint inhibitors, they were based on basic research that was done by people, for instance, Jim Allison, who won the Nobel Prize last year for mm. this, that was occurred 20 years ago. And back then, it was so risky that the NCI wouldn't fund it. Mm. So I have a need to, to provide research funding to my members to enable them to develop the critical preliminary data to allow them to supply, apply successfully for one of those grants. That's what the Anti-Cancer Challenge does. Every single dollar that's raised through the fundraising, the peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, I push out to fund that cancer research at UCI and also our pediatric cancer partner, that's Chalk Children's. The return on investment of that is tremendous. So for every dollar that we give to our researchers to put into that research, we get back 18 to $20 after a year or two in extramural grants from the government and from Susan Komen, ACS, hmm. places like that. So it's kind of a way to kind of prove your, uh, your model or pr prove your theory or your concept a little bit so that you can then show it and get more funding when it's a little bit more of a sure thing. If you were in industry, you call this de-risking or proof of concept. Right, That's right, the buzzwords yeah. that uh -huh. they use. Right. Exactly. That's what we do. Okay, interesting. So, so people, if they donate to this, and this is usually, this is members of the community that are participating in this, that's kind of cool. You're basically, you could be seeding the next massive breakthrough in cancer treatment. That's, that's pretty awesome. I think it's a really uh, exciting concept. At the event, we actually have some examples of the research projects that were funded by the event the year before that people can mm. look at and they can see the impact that their money money has. Huh. That's actually, that's pretty cool that people can actually see how their money, their hard-earned money that they're putting into this cause, that it's actually, you know, working and it's actually going towards something. That's really cool. Well, why don't we take this opportunity to find out how exactly this event is going to work this year uh, and how it's been had to be modified because of the pandemic by bringing on our next guest, the executive director of the Anti-Cancer Challenge, Jennifer Sorrell. She's been working super hard over the last few months to reimagine this event, and it's something that's purely virtual. So please welcome Jennifer to the show. How are you doing, Jennifer? Oh, I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad we could do this in a socially distanced way <laughs> um, over the computer. So uh, so now, you know, originally your event was going to take place back in June, but COVID hit. It changed everything for everyone. Now the event is scheduled for October 3rd. 
but I got to ask, was there ever a time that you thought the event wasn't going to happen this year, that it was just going to have to be canceled? You know, I knew that we were going to have to do things differently. And as you know, the weeks went by, that became more and more apparent, but there's still is such a need to raise these critical funds as well as to bring this community together that I knew we were going to to find a way to do so. So what it is important to keep going and what is with this event kind of what can people ex- expect to experience this is kind of you know uncharted territory I suppose for a big fundraising effort like this so what what can people how do you make it virtual how does that work what can people experience? Yeah so leading up to October 3rd Um, We're hosting all sorts of virtual activities so you can participate in weekly fitness challenges, virtual wellness classes, and educational webinars that can help you take those measurable steps to improve your health and wellness. And then, as I shared, we're going to be hosting this great virtual celebration on October 3rd. Okay, so it's kind of like a whole, there's a whole lead up to it. And by the time people hear this, there'll be kind of the last couple of weeks there right up before the big event. Uh, how do people sign up for something like this and to help contribute? So sure. So it's really easy. It takes just a few minutes to register on our website, anticancerchallenge.org. And then we're going to be inspiring and encouraging folks to raise funds um, through our easy online fundraising tools to earn really great prizes. And then uh, you'll tune into an inspirational opening ceremony on October 3rd at 8 a.m. And then ride, run, walk, or simply celebrate at your homes and in your communities. All right, great. Including if your local LA Fitness is open, you can try that too. All right, well, thank you, Jennifer, for explaining the event uh, so simply. We really appreciate that. Uh, Now, let's get back to Dr. Rick Van Etten to wrap this up. so, uh, Dr. Van Etten, at the end of every episode, we do something called actionable advice, where we basically ask someone, you know, to, to sum up everything we've been talking about. So can you kind of tell us what that would be for you regarding cancer prevention? So with regard to cancer and screening and prevention, I would just say, don't be afraid of cancer. It's here, it's prevalent, but we're very successful at treating it and goes, goes back to what I say, knowledge is power. So bring it up to your primary care physician. Um, if there's any questions and you think you need a referral, um, reach out to us at, at, at the NCI Cancer Center, at the Chow Family Cancer Center. And we're here to help and to partner with community providers um, to develop the proper approach to dealing with cancer. So don't be scared of it. Around the Anti-Cancer Challenge, it's really just about help support us and help come and have a great time. And I can't say how much how appreciative we are Andrew to uh, LA Fitness for for being one of our corporate sponsors this year. Great. And do, do you do the challenge? Oh, I do. Uh, what yeah. do, you, what I, do you do? Run? Or, I, I or ride. You ride? I yeah. ride. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Yep. All right. Well, we'll see you out there on the trek. Okay. All right. Thank you for coming on the show. You're most welcome. Now, as we mentioned before, you can get involved in the virtual event on October 3rd. Just visit www.anti-cancerchallenge.org. That has all the information you need to get involved, and it's a really cool opportunity to, like I said, see the next breakthrough in cancer treatment, which could help your mother or father, could help yourself, or could help your children. So please get involved, and if your local LA Fitness is open, feel free to use our facility to do that virtual ride, walk, or run. Thank you for listening. We'll hopefully be back in a couple weeks with a new episode. We actually had a few more episodes pre-recorded before the pandemic hit, so we're going to try and release those, and hopefully we'll be able to start recording new episodes soon. Thank you for listening, and hang in there.